welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The ancient world was filled with gods, some more demanding than others, but all a distraction from the one true God. Teaching team member Caleb Click starts the series Ten Commandments, The Heart of God for the Heart of Man, with this sermon entitled, You Shall Have No Other Gods Before Me which covers Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, when your voice thunders, it breaks the cedars, flashes forth like fire, and shakes the wilderness. This morning, by that same voice, would you break our hard hearts, shake the wilderness of our affections, and burn away whatever is not of you. Give birth to new life in us, fresh faith, fresh repentance, fresh obedience, and fresh love. Amen. Father, we ask as we come to this text, as the one who takes pleasure in your people and who clothes the humble with salvation, would you do that now? Would you open our eyes to the beauty of your son Jesus, and through your spirit, would you lead our hearts to worship him and him alone? Would you do that now? In his precious name we pray, amen. As most of you know, Mallory and I, we have four little girls. We have an eight-year-old, twin six-year-olds, and then a small two-and-a-half-year-old named Maggie, who is, if you've met her, uh, a sweetheart. She will steal your heart in a heartbeat. All you got to do is see her and see her smile one time, and she has you in the palm of her hand. But she is in this stage that every parent here is probably far too familiar with, this stage that we like to call the terrible twos which is just code for whatever you want her to do, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how loving or kind or compassionate it might be, she wants to do the exact opposite. Uh, If you ask her to put on her shirt, she's going to take off her pants. Uh, If you smell something kind of floating around behind her as she walks by and you want to relieve her, let the reader understand, of what it is that is causing this odor, and you say, Maggie, can I please change you? She's going to look at you, give you the side eye and say no, and then wriggle away as fast as she can. If you offer her food, even the food that just seconds ago was her favorite, if you ask her to eat it, she will throw it on the floor. If you see her standing by the side of the road watching her sisters run away to their friends' houses and you see what's going on in that little mind of hers and you know what she's contemplating and you shout up after her because, you know, we just don't love her and don't care about her, please don't run out into the street. Maggie, Maggie will turn and look at you and the gears will turn and then she will turn on her heel and start sprinting as fast as her little legs can carry her. And Mal or I will have to run up the street after her, shouting the whole time, please stop, please stop. She hears those commands, as well-intentioned as they are, as, as loving as they are. And what Maggie hears, it's not the kindness, it's not the love, it's not the care, it's the loss of her freedom. 
And so Maggie hears those commands, and Maggie, Maggie runs. For so many of us, that's how we hear the commands that begin here in Exodus 20. You know, you may not remember this. It's been almost two years since we were in this text. But the previous 19 chapters of the book of Exodus have been the whole thing, the story of God's gracious redemption of his people. Israel is enslaved in Egypt. They are groaning because of the weight of their oppression. And God, he hears their groans. He's moved by their groans. And God moves to save his people. He brings them out of the land of Egypt. He defeats the Egyptian powers. He brings them into the wilderness. And he is preparing to bring them into the land that he has promised. This land of blessing where he is going to dwell in their midst. And at that part, those 19 chapters, our hearts, they just sing. Because it is this picture of the beauty and the love of the God that we have now seen even more clearly in the face of Jesus. But then we get to these verses, and suddenly, at least from our perspective, everything feels like it changes. Because it feels like the God who just brought his people out into freedom, he is now bit by bit, command by command, taking that freedom away. And the God who just freed them from oppression, it feels to us like he is bringing them into oppression yet again. And in the same way that Pharaoh made them make straw, bricks without straw, he is now laying on the shoulders of his people burdens too great for them to carry. But if that's what we think God is doing, then we have profoundly misunderstood this text. Because where does the text begin? Before God issues a single command, before he gives the Ten Commandments, these probably the most famous commands in all of Scripture, God takes his finger in verse 2 and he points back at the previous 19 chapters and he says, do you remember who I have revealed myself to be? and whom I have now made you to be. Who am I, God says? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God says, I am your God, and you are my people. Or as he says in Exodus 4, I am your father and you are my son. I have delivered you so that you would know me as father and yourself as children, which means every command that follows. It's not God bringing his people out of one house of slavery and into another. It is God inviting his people into the freedom of the children of God. These commands, these commands aren't here to take our freedom. These commands are here to protect our freedoms. That as God's redeemed people, as Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt and we are now redeemed in Christ, that we would live in the way that we were created to live and redeemed to enjoy. The same heart that issues forth our redemption, that is the heart that now births these commands. But where does that freedom begin? In the most counterintuitive of ways. 
by giving ourselves wholly and completely, body and soul, mind and spirit to one and one only, the Lord our Redeemer. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. If you want to put it positively, it's the same command in reverse in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. God says, you want to know freedom? Worship me. Love me. Give yourself to me and to me alone. Now we hear that and we think, how in the world could that be freedom? But what the scriptures would tell us is this. The freedom into which God is inviting us here, it is not freedom from restraint. A fish that's on land, that fish is free from restraint, but that fish is not really enjoying life, is he? The freedom that the scripture is inviting us into, it is freedom in accordance with our created design. It's what the fish experiences when he is in the sea and living as God designed him to live. And what God would have us know, what he is saying to us in this first command, is if you give your heart, if you give your worship, if you give your affections to anyone, anything other than me, then those gods, whatever they might be, they will not only enslave you, but they will in the end kill if you worship these gods, they will steal and they will kill. You know, into our modern ears, we miss some of the offense of this text. If you were in the ancient Near East, you know, gods, gods were everywhere. They were just a part of your day-to-day -day life. If you were, and I'm going to put things in modern terms, if you were going to the grocery store, you were getting in the carpool line, or you were going to work, or going to a football stadium for a game, or whatever it is you were doing, you were engaging with the gods. There was a god for almost anything that you could imagine. It was a world where they felt the presence of the divine everywhere. It was as what we might call an enchanted world. And all you have to do is think about the land that Israel has just been freed from. I mean, when you were in elementary school, I know it's been a long time for some of you, you did a little bit of work on Egyptian mythology, and what do you remember about Egypt? Did they have just a few gods, or did they have many? Many. They had a god for the Nile, a god for the sun, a god for the underworld, a god of fertility. They had a god of the stars. They had a god for the weather. They had a god for anything that you could imagine. And Pharaoh himself, he was supposed to be a living, breathing embodiment of the divine. When Pharaoh speaks or Pharaoh acts, it is a god who is speaking and acting. And these gods, these were gods you lived in fear of. Because these gods, they were not unchanging. They were constantly shifting. They were fickle and prone to anger. And you never knew if you were on their good side or their bad side. And so you lived your whole life constantly trying to appease these gods. Because if you didn't, they were prone to take vengeance on you just because they felt like it. And not only would they take vengeance on you, but what they believed is that that god would take vengeance on the community too. Like, if you've ever wondered, if you've ever thought it was strange 
Why in ancient Rome people got so upset at the church for refusing to bow down to the Roman gods, this is the reason. Because in their minds, what made you a good neighbor was not sacrificing for the sake of the widow and the orphan. It was bowing down to the gods so they did not bring vengeance, not just on you personally, but on the community in which you lived. And so when Rome falls, this is what Augustine's dealing with in the city of God, the pagans are pointing their fingers at the Christians and saying, do you see what you did? You bowed down to him and to him alone and not to the other gods, and now everything we loved is gone. They would have heard this command and said, not, don't worship the other gods? That puts everyone at risk. It would have sounded like madness. But today, when we read this same command, the offense is still there, but it's in the exact opposite direction. Uh, to them, the offense was that it asked you to worship one God and to reject the many. To us, the offense is that it demands we worship any God at all. Because where they lived in a world where the gods were everywhere, we live in a God where it feels as though the gods are nowhere. We live in what philosophers are calling a disenchanted age. The Industrial Revolution has so changed the way we experience the world that even those of us who are believers, we live in a world where everywhere we feel God's absence. Belief isn't easy, belief is hard. And yet here's the truth. It doesn't matter if you were born in the ancient age or if you were born in this one. It doesn't matter if you think there are gods everywhere or if you think there are gods nowhere. All of us, without exception, every person in this room and in this world, everyone worships something. The only question is what? David Foster Wallace is a famous writer from a few years ago. He's not a Christian, but he gave this really profound speech at Kenyon College back in 2005. And he said this, and remember as I read this, this is not a believer. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and if you worship the wrong thing, that thing will eat you alive. Wallace has put his finger on something profound. This fundamental Christian truth that you see etched across the entirety of the Bible. When God created us in Genesis 1, he didn't create us just to live freely without any restraint and to do whatever it is we wanted to do. He designed us specifically as those made in his image for communion with himself where he loved us and we loved him and in that communion of love we found our life. As we worshiped him, we experienced his goodness, his beauty, his majesty, and we knew what it was to truly live. That was our design. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve decide to give their worship to another because they become convinced that this God who made them for himself, who has given them the garden and everything in it, that this God is somehow withholding something from them. 
and that there is something that they need more than him. And from that one act, everything we were designed to have rips apart. Where once there was communion, now there is hostility. Where once there was intimacy, now there is distance. Where once there was fullness of joy, now there is sorrow everywhere that we turn. Where once there was life, now there's death. Sin destroyed everything. But it didn't change one thing. It didn't change us from being worshipers. All sin did was redirect that worship. Away from the creator, as Romans 1 says, and towards the creation. To those things that we can taste and touch and feel. And it doesn't matter who you are. None of us are immune from that. Every person in this room if you were to search your heart and ask why it is you do the things you do, you know in the very core of your being there is something in you that is desperately looking for something to give you the feeling of life. You're looking for security. You're looking for peace. You're looking for significance. You're looking for meaning. You are looking for something, anything, to give you just the tiniest taste of joy. And while we may not worship the gods of old, and we may not be bowing down to gods like Pharaoh, we are bowing down to functional gods nonetheless because we look for the answer to that question in the things of this world. We look to our strength, to our beauty, to our jobs, to our diplomas, to fame, to money, to sex, to relationships, to any number of things, and we give and we give and we give and we give on the altar of those gods thinking, if I just give a little bit more, then maybe I will finally get that thing I so desperately long for. And yet, what is the truth that all of us know and no one wants to admit? We give and give and give, and what do we get in return? Nothing. In fact, we get less than nothing. We become more hollow than we even were before. And you hear the cry of despair everywhere in our culture. You know, this past weekend, as I was watching football, there's this song that for some reason that the college football programs have decided is the anthem of the college football season. It's Post Malone's Something Real, which on the surface sounds like a great anthem, like a great rock song to kind of invite us into college football season. But if you listen at all, it's a weird choice. Because what Post Malone is saying is he's saying, I have all the money. I have all the fame. People literally show up and worship me. I've had all the sex, I've tried all the drugs, but I would trade every single bit of it for something real. I would trade my whole life, he says, just for a little bit of peace. He has given and given and given, and he's found nothing in return. And that's not just him. That is the story of every single person here, even the ones of us who look the most successful. I finished a few weeks ago this biography of a man named Tony Shea, 
whose name may not be familiar to you, it wasn't familiar to me, he's the founder of Zappos.com, a guy who by his early 30s had founded not just one, but two dot-com companies and sold both of them for hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, you want to talk about success, you do that once, we look up to you. You do that twice, you're something different. He was Harvard-educated, he wrote a New York Times bestseller called Delivering Happiness, where he talked all about how to find happiness and build communities that facilitated happiness. He rubbed shoulders with celebrities and politicians. He had the world at his fingertips, and yet if you scratched the surface of this man's life, and you peeled back the veil just a little bit to look at the communities that he made, they promised happiness, but that's not what you found. They were communities of broken relationships and broken promises and broken dreams where people were all wrestling by the boatloads with depression and suicide and drugs were everywhere. And case in point was Tony Shea himself. Because the man who was trying to help others find happiness, he could not find it and so he died in his mid-40s, a drug-addled mess in a fire that he accidentally set. And I don't share that story because I want to point my finger at Tony Shea. I share it because that's all of our stories. We are giving and giving and giving, and we want to pretend like we found it, but the truth is what we've given ourselves to, it never, ever actually satisfies. Wallace, he keeps going in his, uh, his speech. I almost said sermon. Not a sermon, but it still feels like one. If you worship money and things, Wallace says, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will find, end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Doesn't that describe our politics? Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're sinful or evil, though they are. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings they're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. I mean, he's put his finger on it. And that is a danger not just for those who are outside the church. That is a danger that is present even for those of us within the church. Because ask yourself this. In your heart of hearts and at your core, what is that thing that you love and trust the most? Let me get a little more pointed. When you lay your head down at night on your pillow, what consumes your thoughts? If you were to pour over your bank statements, what consumes your money? If you were to pour over your calendar, what consumes your time? If things go badly, 
where do you instinctually turn? And when there are multiple voices calling for your allegiance, which voice are you most prone to obey? That's your God. That's the thing to which you have given your heart. And what Scripture says is if that God is not the God of the Bible, the God we've seen in Jesus Christ, then you may give and give and give yourself to that thing. But in the end, it will only do this. It will enslave you and ultimately it will kill you. Because you were designed for something else. The freedom to worship whatever you want isn't true freedom. You will end up having as many masters, as Augustine says, as you have vices. God says, no, if you want freedom, then that's found in only one place. It is in giving your heart, your affections, to the God for whom you were made, the God who doesn't steal and kill, but instead gives and saves. You know, this, this is what the whole book of Exodus is building up to. Through 19 chapters, God has been showing, revealing to his people and to all the world that all these other things that they are worshiping, they are not true gods, but he, he is. In Exodus 5, God comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, because he's never heard of this God, in verse 2, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? The man who thinks he is a God hears about Israel's God and says, well, who are you and what are you? I'm Pharaoh. I rule the most powerful nation in the world. That is the sign of my power. Who are you to order me around? And God says, you want to know who I am? Watch this. And for 14 chapters, what does God do? He sends plague after plague after plague after plague, each one of them a direct rebuke to an Egyptian god. Each one saying, you think this is a god? It's not. And while it is not a God, I am. He is shattering Egypt and saving Israel that not only Egypt, not only Israel, but all the world would see that he is the Lord and there is no other, that all the earth is his and in the earth there is no one like him. He is saying, you may worship these things, but they are not gods. I am. And he not only reveals that he's the true God in the midst of a world of false ones, he reveals himself to be a God unlike any the world has ever seen. Not a God of indifference or cruelty, not an unstable and, un and changing God, but a gracious God. The gods of this world, we call and we call and we call, and they say nothing in return. They just take. But Israel's God, when God's people groan, he hears their groan like it is an articulate prayer. And he doesn't just hear the prayer, he moves to save. He uses his power not to oppress them, but to set them free. And though Israel, just like us, every step of the way, not just in the first 19 chapters, but all across the Bible, 
though they show themselves to be an ungrateful, rebellious people who resist even his attempts to love them with everything that they have, God doesn't strike them as they deserve. Instead, in Exodus 17, in a way that points us ahead to what's to come, God takes the blow himself that they might live. He's not the God who brings them into slavery. No, as verse 2 says, he is the God who brings them out. That's the God that we now see in the face of Jesus Christ. Because what has God done in Christ? He hasn't just freed us from physical slavery. He has freed us from our slavery to sin and to death, even our slavery to idols. And how has God done it? Not by taking, not by demanding, but by giving. And what does he give? The life of the beloved son. And this is love, 1 John 4 says. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. All the other gods, they inspire fear. If you don't give and give and give to that God, it's going to strike you down and leave you dead. But this God, this God is the one whose love casts out fear. Because if he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, as Paul says in Romans 8, what do you think he would ever withhold from you that you truly need? Why should we give this God our heart? Because he's already given us his. And yet here's the problem. Left to our own devices, in our own power, and our own strength, Giving our hearts to this God, that is the one thing that we will absolutely never, ever do. I mean, the scripture everywhere declares it. It's what you see painted through the entire story of Israel, and you see in every heart since then and in our own. Our hearts on their own, they're not desirous of God, they're hostile to Him. And if you don't believe that, you need only to notice this. When we come to these commands and we see them as oppressive and burdensome, we find ourselves, every one of us, stumbling on one. I mean, this is the first command of what will be 10, and those 10 will eventually burst out into over 600 commands about not stealing and not committing adultery, commands that are to be kept not just in action but from the heart. And here's what we have to see. As Luther says in his shorter catechism or his small catechism, if you break any of those other commands, just one of them, it is because you have already in your heart broken this first one. Because there was something that you loved, something that you worshipped, something that you thought would give life more than him that you have already given yourself to. None of us are immune from this. But here's the beauty of the gospel. God, God provided for that too. God was so desirous that we would know the freedom of his children. He didn't just give his son. He gave 
the Spirit too. In Galatians 4, Paul says all of us, we were enslaved to the elemental principles of this world, to the gods of this world that took and took and took. But when the fullness of time had come, verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the very law we're talking about, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, our hostile hearts, crying what? Abba. Father. Do you hear what Paul's saying? God sent his son to stand in our place and to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He is the only one who ever loved the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength, who loved him so much he was willing to go even to death on a cross. And he is the one who out of love for us goes to that cross in our place for our sins that we would live under sin's penalty no more and be gripped by its power no longer. He has redeemed us. Why? That we would be sons. But God knew we needed more. We didn't just need the new life that is in Christ, the new identity. We needed a new heart. And so he gave his spirit that our orphan hearts would become the hearts of children. Children who love the one who loved them first. The first command, it's not there to restrict us. It's not there to bind us. It is the invitation of our Heavenly Father to enter into the freedom of sons and daughters. To give Him our all because He has already given us His all. And day by day, moment by moment, more and more to cry, Abba, Father. One of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. And I realized it in the first service. The last time I preached, I closed with something from The Last Battle. So maybe my head's stuck in a rut. But not the same story. Different story. And if you don't know that story, it's C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And in those stories, there's these children who are from our world, but who find themselves in this sort of alternate world where animals talk and myths come to life. And there is this glorious lion named Aslan, who's the sort of Jesus figure. Well, at the end of the last battle, the children find themselves in Narnia's version of the new heavens and the new earth. Death has been defeated, evil has been conquered, sin is gone, and they are in this world that is gloriously made new, and standing in front of them is Aslan in all of his glory and beauty. He is shimmering with majesty, and all of the sudden, in this gloriously new world, Aslan turns on his heel, and he just takes off sprinting into it. And he shouts over his shoulder, come further up, come further in. And the children, they just take off running behind him. And they discover as they are running that this is the world that they have always longed for but never actually known. 
It is a world that is more real and more solid than anything they have ever experienced before. And suddenly as they are running, they realize that that thing that has plugged them their entire life, fear, that fear is gone. And not only is the fear gone, but Lewis writes, they could not be afraid even if they tried. I love that image. Because what Lewis is describing, it's the Christian life. It's the cure to our idolatry. Because what is Jesus inviting us into? It is to come further up and further in to the God who gives and saves and saves us though we have done absolutely nothing to earn it. And who as we go deeper into his heart, we discover more and more that land we always longed for but never actually knew. The one Post Malone cries for and Tony Shea sought but didn't find. The one we have gone looking for in every idol and have always left disappointed. And when we come to him, and more and more taste of his goodness and his beauty, that thing that has plugged us all our lives, fear, it begins to fade until we find ourselves on a day that will come, standing in the presence of that Savior and realizing that now not only is the fear gone, but we cannot be afraid even if we tried. Because the more we know this Jesus, the more we know his love, the more we know his generous heart, the more we come to know the truth of what he himself said. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why would we give our hearts to anyone or anything else? He's given us his. There is freedom in him and in him alone. Amen. Gracious Father, we are so thankful this morning that we have a God of such love who pursues even sinners like us and does so at the cost of his own son who would give us not just his son, but his very spirit. And we pray, Lord, as we come into this time where we confess our sins and then we come to your table, we, we ask, God, where, where our hearts have gone astray, would you bring them home? Lord, where we have run from you in any way, Lord, we pray, would you, would you bring us back to the one who is our life? Lord, where we are enslaved, we pray, would you break our bondage as only you can? And would you bring us even more into the glorious freedom of sons and daughters? Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.